Welcome to Kindred Spirits Book Club, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Reagan Duffy, and I'm here with my co-host, Kelly Gurner, and we are so excited about our show today. Gilbert, Gilbert, Gilbert. Before we begin our conversation about Gilbert Blythe that we have been waiting to talk about, <laughs> Kelly, what are you doing this week? Are you thinking ahead to next year? 2023? Are you reflecting on the old year? So one thing that I always really like doing this time of year is looking back on all the books I've read and organizing them by theme. I am aware (laughs) that that sounds like inexpressibly nerdy, but I've been doing this for about eight years now. And I always find that it's worth the work it takes to cull through my previous reads and find some of those connecting threads. It's interesting to me to reflect back on those ideas and interests that sort of defined my year and kept cropping up in my reading. And it also helps me remember all the books I've read. I started doing this after reading the writer Roxane Gay's annual reading wrap-up, where she managed to fit all the books that she had read that year into five or six oddly specific categories. So I challenged myself to do the same thing, and I've been doing it ever since. Some of those oddly specific categories I've created in past years are books about scrappy teenage girls surviving in an alternate universe Old West by their wits. (laughs) Kelly, you read enough books like this for it to be a category? Yes. I don't know what was going on in 2016, but I read like five books that were all about scrappy teenage girls surviving an alternate universe Old West by their wits. They're, They're all really good, actually. Hit me with a few more. Sure. So 2020 saw scary stories about haunted houses because apparently being locked in my own house for most of the year wasn't gothic enough for me. Books I read because I want to understand our country better, results pending. So do you have any results? No, results are still pending. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Six years later, results still pending on that one. And romances that made me swoon onto my brocade fainting couch. (laughs) I feel like you must have that category every year, right? Yeah, I usually do some like kind of favorite romance reads because that's definitely the genre I read most of. But even in that genre, I find a lot of through lines. One year, I must have read three or four like nanny related books where it was like the nanny fell in love with the widowed father or whatever. Ah. I I called that my Sound of Music romance year. (laughs) That week between Christmas and New Year's, this is one of those activities that I always look forward to. And I love that you do that. I always look forward to reading your list and getting some reading inspiration from you. Did you have any standout favorite books this year? Yes, always. So this year I read This Time Tomorrow by Emma Straub, and that was one of my favorites. This book is about a woman who, on the eve of her 40th birthday, manages to travel back in time to the night of her 16th birthday. And then those small tweaks she makes when she's reliving that 16th birthday again, those end up changing her life as a 40-year-old in really interesting ways. So she kind of figures out what she needs to do to time travel. She goes back and forth several times trying to, quote unquote, get it right because she's trying to change her career and her relationships, her father's health. And it was so interesting to see which of those things could change easily and which of those things are just fixed, like they just are the way they are. So it's a really lovely, gentle book. It's a compelling read in the way that those kind of time loop stories like Groundhog Day often are. And it's also the exact book that I needed to read the month before I turned 40 this year. I think Emma Straub and I are right about the same age. And so all of her cultural references from the main character's 16-year-old life felt completely real to me. The fashion and the music and even the way that the kids talk to each other, like their slang. It made me reflect on some of those decisions that I made in high school and how they impacted my adult life. And I don't know, I just really liked it. <laughs> I'm not sure if everyone would love it as much as I did, but it's just one of those books that found me at exactly the right time and in exactly the right mood. How about you? What books did you love this year? I feel like my reading this year was a little all over the place. I hit a few reading slumps that I had a hard time jumpstarting myself out of. And whether that was because I read some books I was underwhelmed by or because I was feeling overwhelmed in general. Usually when I'm overwhelmed with life, I tend to reread favorite books. But I felt so guilty about having a big to-be-read pile that was growing larger by the week that I couldn't reread either. So I just kind of got stuck. I had tried to commit to finishing books on my TBR pile, but that didn't really work out productively for me. I think I just set myself up to avoid it instead. 
I have been there. That I think is one of those things where sometimes having like a looming book list does make you feel sort of stuck. And I have found that when that happens to me, I just need to read the first chapter of like five books and pick whichever one I felt like falling into. Like it has to be an almost sort of emotional organic experience. You can't just sit down with a book and say, I will read this today. That's what was really happening to me. I started several books and wasn't interested in finishing them, not because they were bad. They just weren't grabbing me. And that's kind of unusual for me. Generally, like if I pick up a book, once I get a chapter or two in, I'm in. It's extremely rare that, I mean, sometimes I will stop reading a book because it's bad, but these books, yeah, none of them were bad books. I didn't, most of them, I didn't get far enough to decide whether or not they were bad. I just couldn't get into anything. And so then I kind of would end up getting sort of stuck and feeling guilty. I wasn't reading something new. So I didn't go back and read something old, which is generally what I do to jumpstart reading again, or even just when I'm feeling overwhelmed and too busy, mm-hmm. rereading is something that I often do because it's very comforting and I don't have to put a lot of brain power into it. So I didn't read as many books as I generally do, but I did have two big favorite books of the year. One of those was the conclusion to Naomi Novik's Skolomance series. The book is The Golden Enclaves. That was great. It was great. And the other is Book Lovers by Emily Henry. Also really great. Also really great. So Naomi Novik's Scholomance series, it's dark academia. It's an anti-hero hero. It's got a sharp, sarcastic heroine. I've been very invested in this trilogy. I've been waiting for the third one to come out. And I love it when a series wraps up strongly instead of petering out. And the Golden Enclaves really did that for me. I really loved it. And then my other favorite book, Book Lovers, is a romance novel that also has a sharp, sarcastic heroine. So maybe that's my thing this year. (laughs) And it just charmed me all the way through, so much so that I actually did reread it again two months later because I just wanted to revisit it. I think that your through line there are leading ladies who don't suffer fools. That would be the oddly specific category that I would put those two books in. Yeah, not generally two books that you would think of as being related. On to our kindred spirit. Today we are discussing Gilbert Blythe. Yay, Gilbert! Gilbert, (laughs) Who I'm not sure that Anne would have called a kindred spirit in this book, but who goes from rival to friend and who will eventually be Anne's primary love interest and partner. I think we can safely say that Gilbert is a kindred spirit, even if Anne doesn't know it yet. We get two introductions to Gilbert Blythe, signifying his importance to the story. Diana first tells Anne all about the handsome older boy who comes to school later in September and who teases the girls something terrible. Maud also notes that Diana seems not to mind Gilbert's teasing. The boy himself appears on the page a little later on. Diana whispered to Anne, That's Gilbert Blythe sitting right across the aisle from you, Anne. Just look at him and see if you don't think he's handsome. Anne looked accordingly. She had a good chance to do so, for the said Gilbert Blythe was absorbed in stealthily pinning the long yellow braid of Ruby Gillis, who sat in front of him to the back of her seat. He was a tall boy with curly brown hair, roguish hazel eyes, and a mouth twisted into a teasing smile. Presently, Ruby Gillis started to take a sum to the master. She fell back into her seat with a little shriek, believing that her hair was pulled out by the roots. Everybody looked at her, and Mr. Phillips glared so sternly that Ruby began to cry. Gilbert had whisked the pin out of sight and was studying the history with the soberest face in the world. But when the commotion subsided, he looked at Anne and winked with inexpressible drollery. I think your Gilbert Blythe is handsome, confided Anne to Diana, but I think he's very bold. It isn't good manners to wink at a strange girl. This passage gives us so much information about Gilbert straight away. He's good-looking and a bit of a rascal, the sort of boy whose good looks and cheerful demeanor let him get away with all kinds of mischief. He enjoys a prank, but doesn't seem malicious or cruel. And he's bold, as Anne says, so perfectly assured that he will be liked by everyone in his world that it doesn't occur to him to not wink at a strange girl. We understand that Gilbert is a golden boy, well-liked and popular, who doesn't need to go to any particular effort to make other kids like him. For our story club today, we want to talk about the singular way that Gilbert affects Anne throughout this book. Anne's ongoing conflict with Gilbert is a narrative outlier. 
Although Anne is broadly accepted and well-liked in Avonlea school, her rivalry with Gilbert is unique. Although Anne never gets along with Josie Pye, it's made clear in the book that Josie is generally very disagreeable to pretty much everyone, and Anne never cuts Josie out coldly at all, no matter how irritated Anne is by Josie. Gilbert is the only person that Anne is so inflexibly determined to dislike, and he's a very likable person. Also, the length of the tension between Anne and Gilbert is remarkable in the context of the rest of the book. In almost every other instance, Anne is able to resolve her scrapes within a chapter or two. She insults Mrs. Lynde in one chapter and apologizes in the next. She has Diana over to a tragic tea in one chapter, saves Minnie Mae two chapters later. But the conflict with Gilbert takes most of the book to resolve, despite several opportunities for Anne to set it right. This conflict is meant to help propel the broader narrative arc forward, and it's one that Maud will develop very slowly. It reminds me of a sitcom will-they-won't-they trope, like the writers never want characters to get together too soon because of the fear that once there's no romantic tension, audiences will lose interest. Romance, or the potential for romance, is a powerful plot driver. In this book, it must be said that Anne's mind is far from romance, although she admits to Diana that Gilbert is handsome. Only moments later, she's cracking her slate over his head for calling her carrots. Let's talk about what we think is really going on here. Gilbert is a boy who's used to being well-liked and popular, and Anne is a source of intrigue for him on his first day back at Avonlea School. I have to wonder if he was saddled with quite a bit of grown-up responsibility at home. Because as soon as he comes back to school, he seems ready for mischief. He wastes no time pinning Ruby's braid to her desk. After he gets away with that, he focuses his attention on Anne. It's like he came back to school with a to-do list of mischief, I think. Right? Well, he's been out of school for several years, at least two. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, he's got a pent-up mischief. He does. (laughs) The class is in disarray because Mr. Phillips is only paying attention to Prissy Andrews. Ugh. There are literally boys with crickets on strings who are racing them down the aisles. It's a mess. And Gilbert is trying to get Anne's attention. She's oblivious, lost in a daydream and gazing out the window. Gilbert Blythe wasn't used to putting himself out to make a girl look at him and meeting with failure. She should look at him, that red-haired Shirley girl with the little pointed chin and the big eyes that weren't like the eyes of any other girl in Avonlea school. Gilbert is rather audacious here, isn't he? She should look at him. In his mind, he should have her attention and consequently her admiration, as he does from all the other children of the school. And because she doesn't give him that attention right away, he notices her all the more acutely. And of course, this will continue throughout the book. The more Anne refuses to notice Gilbert, the more he wants her to notice him. This passage reminds me so much of Mr. Darcy, the haughty hero of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, of course. Do you remember when he is first remarking on Elizabeth Bennet's fine eyes? Yeah. Yeah, just thinking about Gilbert thinking about Anne's big eyes that weren't like the eyes of any other girl in Avonlea school put that in mind for me. And I think it's another interesting comparison because neither Darcy nor Gilbert is necessarily thinking about romance yet, but they've noticed something about the heroines. So Anne, needless to say, does not look at Gilbert. (laughs) So he escalates his attention-seeking efforts by calling her carrots. And the book tells us that then Anne looked at him with a vengeance. She did more than look. She sprang to her feet, her bright fancies fallen into cureless ruin. She flashed one indignant glance at Gilbert from eyes whose angry sparkle was swiftly quenched in equally angry tears. You mean, hateful boy, she exclaimed passionately. How dare you? And then, thwack, Anne had brought her slate down on Gilbert's head and cracked it. Slate, not head. Clear across. Avonlea School always enjoyed a scene. This was an especially enjoyable one. Everybody said, oh, in horrified delight. Diana gasped. Ruby Gillis, who was inclined to be hysterical, began to cry. Tommy Sloan let his team of crickets escape him altogether while he stared open mouthed at the tableau. So the crickets are loose. (laughs) (laughs) This is definitely a great comic moment in the book and one of the most memorable moments in all of Anna Green Gable's lore, right? I mean, outside of those iconic red braids, when you think of Anne, you think of her smashing her slate over Gilbert's head. And then like Anne insulting Mrs. Rachel Lynde or letting Josie Pye goad her into walking the ridgepole, Anne has succumbed to her temper with catastrophic results. 
Although Gilbert tries to take the fall by telling Mr. Phillips that he provoked Anne, Mr. Phillips still punishes her by making her stand in front of the classroom under a statement that she has a bad temper, and she's flooded with shame and humiliation. Shame and humiliation which she attributes directly to Gilbert, not the uncaring Mr. Phillips or even her own short fuse. So, Reagan, I'm curious as to your take about why Anne goes straight to Gilbert as her scapegoat and the source of her fury and humiliation. Why him and not Mr. Phillips? Because I really believe that if Mr. Phillips hadn't punished Anne by publicly shaming her, she would have been able to forgive Gilbert much more readily, similar to how things turned out with Mrs. Lynde. Mr. Phillips is the bad actor here, and it's like Anne just transferred all of her rage to Gilbert instead. Well, I think it's related a bit to power. Being angry at Mr. Phillips does no good. He's in power. There's nothing Anne can do to hurt him back. But she Mm -hmm. does have power related to Gilbert. They are equals. She can, in fact, act towards him. She can punish him in a way she can't punish Mr. Phillips. Anne's pride is deeply wounded by this incident, and Gilbert is the handiest spot to put it. She doesn't know him. He doesn't have any particular power over her. He's easy to scapegoat. I wonder also if there's a little bit of a friction of attraction to him that she doesn't know what to do with yet. Okay. Being teased by anyone about something you're sensitive about doesn't feel good. But when you're teased by someone that maybe you're a tiny bit attracted to, it's even worse. Mm -hmm. Gilbert apologizes to Anne as soon as school is over. It's a good apology, specific and sincere. He says he's sorry he made fun of her hair and asked her not to be mad for keeps. Clearly, he's not troubled by having a slate broken over his head and (laughs) considers that fair repayment for the insult. But Anne swept by disdainfully without look or sign of hearing. Anne is determined to ignore Gilbert and to punish him by rendering him invisible. And Anne's a bit of a genius here, as this punishment seems precisely calculated to affect Gilbert the most. He was already exasperated with Anne for ignoring him in class, and now she's going to ignore him forever. For a golden boy, this is severe punishment indeed. It really is. Diana is shocked and tries to mend fences, telling Anne that Gilbert teases all the girls and has called Diana Crow before on account of her having black hair. Anne says it's not at all the same that calling Anne carrots is far more cruel than calling Diana Crow. And I have to say, I can really feel Anne's point here. And I almost agree with her. What this made me think of is being teased for being fat as a child. And it is true that some children are also teased for being skinny, but there are much larger social dynamics at play that make being called fat a much more injurious insult than being called skinny. Fatness is associated with laziness and stupidity, and thinness is associated with discipline and attractiveness. So, you know, that's not the same. In Anne's world, we see that red hair is associated with homeliness, while black hair is associated with beauty. So. Although the two insults might be equally aggravating to the girls, one is more offensive than the other. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Diana also has a lot of things going for her. Mm -hmm. She's pretty in a conventional way. She's an insider. She has lots of friends and a family. Being teased for one of the reasons she's considered pretty isn't exactly a deep cut. Right. It's kind of like being called blondie. Yeah. Diana has all the social armor for Gilbert's teasing to bounce off as annoyance. But Anne has far less. She's been considered ugly. And she's already decided that being homely and having red hair is the reason why she has not been adopted earlier. Mm. Remember at the very beginning when Marilla says that Anne has to go back? Anne asks that if she had beautiful nut brown hair, would Marilla keep her then? Anne thinks that if she were beautiful, she would never have had to endure all those years of rejection. And just a few chapters ago, Mrs. Lynn told Anne she was homely in the very same sentence she said her hair was red as carrots. Of course, Gilbert's teasing is going to cut vulnerable, sensitive Anne deeply and make her immediately feel unwanted. Gilbert doesn't know any of this at all. For him, calling Anne carrots is probably akin to calling Diana Crow. Mm -hmm. He has no idea about Anne's backstory there. There's no hint that he thinks that Anne is homely at all. Quite the opposite, in fact. He truly wasn't trying to wound Anne. Just get her attention. Yeah, I think that's right. I I think that Gilbert was probably in the habit of calling all the girls by some like pithy name associated with their hair color or other physical attribute. And I don't know if he was evaluating the relative intensity of the insults on like a societal scale. No, I'm sure he probably calls some of the girls freckles or something of that nature. (laughs) 
By the time Anne broke the slate over his head, I'm sure that Gilbert understood that he had gone too far. But in the moment, I think he was just being that careless young rogue that he was so used to being. Gilbert also does something quite different from the other people that Anne gets off on the wrong foot with. He owns his behavior. He apologizes sincerely, and he clearly feels bad that he hurt Anne, even though it was not intentional on his part. Compare that to Mrs. Lind, with whom Anne has recently had a very similar encounter. Part of this may be the difference in power dynamics. Mrs. Lind has the power in Anne's encounter with her. She's the adult with a lot of social standing, and as such, it would not occur to her to apologize immediately to a child. Gilbert is Anne's peer, so he's not lowering himself particularly by apologizing to Anne. Although he is an older boy apologizing to a younger girl, and an Avonlea native apologizing to an orphan newcomer. So he could probably easily get away with not apologizing to Anne at all. But I think this tells us something about Gilbert. He has more introspection and self-insight, and he's not too proud to admit when he's wrong. He's kind. He's clearly startled and surprised that he hurt Anne. That really wasn't his intention. And while he enjoys mischief, he's not mean-spirited in the least. Yeah, I think that Gilbert's apology actually gives us a really clear window into his character and some of his just essential kindness. Mr. Phillips heaps insult upon injury the following day when he punishes Anne for being late by making her sit with Gilbert. Maud tells us in the text that if it hadn't been for this moment when Anne yet again feels humiliated and Gilbert is in proximity, the whole slate incident might have blown over quickly. Anne is already vulnerable and ashamed from the day before. And when she has to sit next to Gilbert as punishment, her deep humiliation turns into anger at Gilbert, even though he really had nothing to do with Anne's punishment this time. I think when Anne sees Gilbert following these two days, she's immediately reminded of this feeling of intense humiliation and shame. She can't interact with Gilbert without those feelings welling back up for her. Mm -hmm. That sounds right. Gilbert uses this punishment time to try to make amends with Anne, giving her a small pink candy heart with You Are Sweet printed on it. Anne crushes the candy under her heel and goes right on ignoring him. Okay, let's talk candy heart. What do you think? Is this little candy heart a declaration of juvenile affection? Or is this just Gilbert trying to apologize? Because I kind of see it both ways. On the one hand, it's reminiscent of like those little cards and snippet of poetry that the little girls were treating. And when I read it as an adult, I don't really read much into it other than Gilbert trying to get back in Anne's good graces. But as a kid, I remember feeling absolutely giddy over this moment. To young me, that wasn't just like some little desk treasure. This was a real token of affection, practically a full-on declaration of love. I agree with you here. I read it as a bit romantic as well, even now. Mm. The little girls are free to be generous with treasures with each other because there's nothing romantic to be expected of their interactions. I get the feeling that boys giving girls little treasures often reads as a bid for romantic interest in the schoolhouse social scene. Yeah. So Gilbert giving Anne anything already has a bit of possible romance attached to it. And particularly, a pink candy heart seems more specifically romantic than, say, a piece of gum or a cookie or something. Anne goes home that day and she declares that she won't return to school. And Marilla, after seeking Mrs. Lynn's counsel, allows Anne to do just that. When Anne sees Gilbert around town, she continues to ignore him. And when she does go back to school, she ignores Gilbert in the most aggressive possible way (laughs) by making him her academic rival. Maud says, the rivalry between them was soon apparent. It was entirely good-natured on Gilbert's side, but it is much to be feared that the same thing could not be said of Anne, who certainly had an unpraiseworthy tenacity for holding grudges. I'm really curious about this rivalry. First of all, it's clear that Anne and Gilbert are both very smart kids anyway, and likely would have been near the top of their classes regardless of this rivalry. But do you think the idea here is that they were both succeeding beyond the bounds of what they might have ordinarily done because of the rivalry? And because Anne felt that rivalry so much more keenly than Gilbert, are we to understand that Gilbert would have been top of class anyway, but Anne only made it there because she set herself against Gilbert? Or is it just that the Gilbert rivalry was what gave Anne the incentive to focus her intelligence on schoolwork rather than, you know, imaginative pursuits? I have to say that I don't really love the idea that Anne would only have been a middling student but for the Gilbert rivalry because I want her to shine on her own. 
Well, I think Gilbert is the inspiration for her academic focus this first year mm. under the distinctly lackluster teaching of Mr. Phillips. Okay, yeah, that's right. She needed something to spur her on with that guy at the helm. Yeah. It's clear Anne is whip smart anyway and probably would have done well. But the idea of Gilbert beating her in, say, spelling seems like it goads her into studying even more than she usually would. I mean, she's 11 here. What inspires most 11-year-olds to do their homework and to study anyway? Most of the time, it's not a desire to learn for learning's sake. It's because they might get in trouble or they like doing well in class and the attention it brings, or they're anxious that they might not do as well as their peers, right? More of an external motivation than an internal motivation at this age. And I think the rivalry pushes Gilbert too, even though he views it as fun and Anne is deadly serious about it. <laughs> Gilbert is a bright kid, too. He missed a lot of school. I think competing with Anne brings some fun stakes to it for him. He might not be as good as he is without competing with Anne. It takes Miss Stacy to help Anne discover her deep joy in academic pursuits for their own sake. I think the rivalry pushes both of them to go a little harder, put in a tiny bit more effort, stick to it just a little bit longer when a topic is difficult, and it makes them both better students in the end. It really reminds me of the Rory Paris academic rivalry in Gilmore Girls. Oh, sure. Both excellent devoted students used to being the top of their class, but when they encounter another kid of their own caliber, it pushes each of them harder than they would otherwise. Although Gilbert is not in the next few chapters, it seems like he's often at the forefront of Anne's mind. She'll start to tell a story about school and mention Gil only to catch herself quickly and amend it to some of the boys. The readers are supposed to notice her preoccupation with Gilbert, you know, that for someone she is dead set on ignoring, he sure is living in her head rent free. But what are we to make of it? Again, thinking about this in the context of the candy heart, is Anne's awareness of Gilbert a prelude to romance, or is it what she says it is, just an intense academic rivalry? I want to take Anne at face value that it's just about the rivalry, but as the school years go by, and as Anne is growing and maturing in other ways, her insistence on ignoring Gilbert is becoming more and more obvious than if she just forgave him and treated him like any other boy. I think it's clear that Gilbert is very different from the other boys to Anne. She's an unreliable reporter when it comes to Gilbert. Yeah, true. And this is distinctly different for Anne. She's usually very candid about her feelings and her failings. But where Gilbert is concerned, it's clear that she's lying both to herself and to others. <laughs> we hear her be a bit dismissive of the other boys in their class, like Charlie Sloan and Moody Spurgeon McPherson, but not with this level of intensity that she does with Gilbert. And I attribute that to the contradictory feelings of attraction and anger in Anne. Anne still blames Gilbert for her most humiliating moment in school, and she can't move past it. But she's also attracted to him, both his intelligence and he's handsome. There's no way she's going to admit it to anyone, especially herself. Much easier to be angry with him. And we also have to reckon with Anne's pride here. I mean, we'll get into Anne's pride more in depth in our episode about her, but it seems like that's one of the obstacles to her becoming friendly with Gilbert. You know, this fact that she had already declared that she absolutely won't ever, and she just can't bear the idea of ever having to go back on that declaration. And I think that character development wise, Maud is using Anne's interactions with Gilbert to be the primary way she illustrates Anne's stubbornness and pride. Anne's every interaction with Gilbert highlights her pride and that tendency to hold a grudge. You know, we don't see this displayed anywhere as consistently as with Gilbert. Although Anne is determined to ignore Gilbert, we do have some information from the text that he can't quite make himself ignore her back. Now, first of all, we only have Diana's interpretation for this particular encounter, but as we discussed in her episode, Diana has proved herself to be socially savvy and very aware and observant of social and romantic dynamics in the community, so I think we can trust her read on the situation here. At the debating club concert that the girls attend, Gilbert Blythe recited Bingen on the Rhine, a poem in the voice of a dying young soldier who is telling his nurse all the things she should relay to his loved ones after he has died. Diana noticed that when Gilbert recited his piece, he looked directly at Anne while saying the line, there's another, not a sister, at the start of a verse describing someone the soldier is in love with. Anne blows off this moment instantly, telling Diana not to speak to her of that person, and immediately changes the subject by suggesting that they race to jump on the bed. Now we know how that turned out, which probably erased Gilbert's possible romantic interest from Anne's mind. Our next encounter with Gilbert as a possible romantic interest is when Anne herself performs at the Christmas concert wearing her beautiful puffed sleeve dress. And again, it's Diana that observes this to Anne, and we know Diana's got a keen eye for flirtation and romantic interest. 
Gilbert Blythe was just splendid. And I do think it's awful mean the way you treat Gil. Wait till I tell you. When you ran off the platform after the fairy dialogue, one of your roses fell out of your hair. I saw Gil pick it up and put it in his breast pocket. There now. You're so romantic that I'm sure you ought to be pleased at that. It's nothing to me what that person does, said Anne loftily. I simply never waste a thought on him, Diana. Anne! It is romantic. Yes. Anne shuts down any possibility of something romantic with Gilbert. Possibly because it's very confusing. Possibly because it still feels powerful to shun him. Possibly because she's just not quite ready to think about romance as it applies to her yet. I mean, that's right. I mean, she's still very young. I think that there is a bit of a proclivity culturally to start pairing kids up, you know, right away. Anne's not ready for it. The tension between Anne's all-consuming awareness of Gilbert but refusal to acknowledge him in any normal way <laughs> comes to a head during the unfortunate Lily Maid chapter. As we discussed in the last episode, Anne and her girlfriends decide to reenact the Tennyson poem by sending Anne across Barry's Pond in a flat-bottom boat, which sinks and leaves Anne stranded on the pile of a bridge. Now, let's cast this in an appropriately romantic Camelot-like light. Anne, our maiden fair, is a damsel in distress, half-drowned and holding on for dear life from the watery depths. Surely, for one with as romantic an imagination as Anne, when the knight-errant comes to her rescue upon his mighty steed... That is, when Gilbert Bly throws over on Mr. Harmon Andrews's dory, she would have had no choice but to fall madly in love. Anne, of course, does no such thing. Once he has rowed her to shore, she refuses his further assistance and thanks him coldly and formally. I'm very much obliged to you, she said haughtily as she turned away. But Gilbert had also sprung from the boat and now laid a detaining hand on her arm. Anne, he said hurriedly, look here. Can't we be good friends? I'm awfully sorry I made fun of your hair that time. I didn't mean to vex you, and I only meant it for a joke. Besides, it's so long ago. I think your hair is awfully pretty now. Honest, I do. Let's be friends. For a moment, Anne hesitated. She had an odd, newly awakened consciousness under all her outraged dignity that the half-shy, half-eager expression in Gilbert's hazel eyes was something that was very good to see. Her heart gave a quick, queer little beat. But the bitterness of her old grievance promptly stiffened up her wavering determination. That scene of two years before flashed back into her recollection as vividly as if it had taken place yesterday. Gilbert had called her carrots and had brought about her disgrace before the whole school. Her resentment, which to other and older people might be as laughable as its cause, was in no whit allayed and softened by time, seemingly. She hated Gilbert Blythe. She would never forgive him. No, she said coldly. I shall never be friends with you, Gilbert Blythe, and I don't want to be. All right! Gilbert sprang into his skiff with an angry cutler in his cheeks. I'll never ask you to be friends again, Anne Shirley, and I don't care either. He pulled away in swift defiant strokes, and Anne went up the steep, ferny little path under the maples. She held her head very high, but she was conscious of an odd feeling of regret. It's so frustrating. <laughs> And for heaven's sake, just let this poor boy off the hook and let yourself off the hook too. But you know what? I think Anne's pride is also wounded by the circumstances of this rescue. If she's ever to forgive Gilbert, it won't be in a situation where they are so unequal, where Gilbert is her rescuer and she is still like beholden to him. And also, I mean, we find out that she is genuinely still very angry that he called her carrots. I think it's useful to remember that even at this point in the book, she has only recently tried dyeing her hair black. So that red hair is still as much a sore spot as it ever was. I think this moment also gives us more of a glimpse into Anne's head when it comes to Gilbert. We know she's often thinking of him and fueling their academic rivalry, even as she declares to Diana that she never gives him a thought. But here we get a little more. We learn that she notices his eyes their half-shy, half-eager expression. She's getting that little glimpse of Gilbert's soul, and she's surprised that she likes what she sees. Mm -hmm. But that's a lot of new information to process. It was easier when they were enemies and rivals, and it takes a lot more maturity than Anne has presently to be able to reconcile old hurt feelings with new circumstances. She falls back on her old approach with Gilbert, this time keeping him at arm's length so she won't ever have to examine those more confusing feelings. 
You know, thinking back to some of my crushes from my early teenage years, I definitely relate to Anne here. It's easier to ignore that person that fascinates you and then ignore those confusing feelings than it is to open yourself up to potential rejection and hurt. And I think I also relate to Anne very specifically in comparing her own romantic fantasies with reality. Like she genuinely wants castle towers and gallant princes, not prosaic pawns and annoying boys and borrowed rowboats. I think like Anne, I had the sense that the real kids that I had crushes on could never live up to my fantasy crushes, so why should I bother? I had a sense as a kid that big romantic love would find me in adulthood and I was willing to wait for it. I will say that that gamble ended up paying off (laughs) (laughs) because I did end up marrying someone who was also very romantic. Yes, you did. (laughs) And I think it's very true. I felt the same way as a young teen. I had no idea what to do with any possible interest from a real actual boy. It was much safer to let romance stay in books and movies and my imagination. I think that's a large part of what's happening here with Anne. Turns out she doesn't actually want to be a damsel in distress. No, who does? In reality, if you were a young teenage girl, you're not quite ready for someone who's making your heart feel that way just yet. No. It's pretty normal to me. I think that Anne's preoccupation with romance as it contrasts with the reality of her life is one of Maud's most clever accomplishments in this book. Anne is constantly romanticizing her life. The simple tree outside her window is recast as the Snow Queen. A grove of trees becomes an enchanted fairy ring. The walk to school is Lover's Lane. Her apologies and her confessions are filled with as much intensity and depth of feeling as are her story club tales of gothic heroines and reformed rakes. And it's meant to be seen as a sign of her growth and maturity when she begins to appreciate her life for what it is. You know, simple country farmhouses and red clay roads, pretty sunsets and changing seasons instead of what she can imagine it to be. But I think here is Maud's really clever trick. In actuality, this book, Anne of Green Gables, lives up to every single one of Anne's romantic aspirations and then some. Anne of Green Gables is absolutely full of dreamily poetic descriptions that are so indelible that they've enshrined Prince Edward Island as a fantasy vacation destination more than 100 years after the publication of the book. And the relationship between Anne and Gilbert, tenuous and tentative as it is in this book, is one of the most memorable romances in children's literature. So, while the reader may laugh at Anne's whimsy, or even see it as a sign of her lack of maturity, Really, we are all right there with her and complicit in loving every minute of this terribly romantic story. That's definitely true. Gilbert was an early model for what I wanted out of romance for me as a kid. His patience and his quiet acceptance of Anne for who she is, his intelligence and kindness, what's not to love? Gilbert is a wonderful romantic hero and... I think that this book is really starting to lay the groundwork for the kind of man he's going to be. You know, we see that he's kind of mischievous and pranky at school, but even now, by the time he's rescued Anne, we start to see this very kind and caring young man. I don't know. I still have a crush on him. (laughs) (laughs) Once Miss Stacy forms the Queen's study class, things between Anne and Gilbert ratchet up a notch as Gilbert joins the rivalry in earnest. I think Anne's rejection of him, her very open, explicit rejection, when Gilbert had legitimately saved her, and he had been vulnerable in asking for her friendship, sparked his own pride. When Anne was just quietly ignoring him, it was one thing, but her very clear and kind of rude rejection of any possibility of even friendship with him had to have hurt. And one of the things I love here is that Gilbert accepts this rejection throwing himself into their rivalry instead of doing that stalkerish thing a good guy trope might do. Keep asking her out or do some big romantic gesture meant to pressure Anne. Gilbert takes Anne at her word and walks away from her. Yes, she tells him no and he respects that. The book explains there was open rivalry between Gilbert and Anne now. Previously, the rivalry had been rather one-sided, but there was no longer any doubt that Gilbert was as determined to be first in class as Anne was. He was a foeman worthy of her steel. The other members of the class tacitly acknowledged their superiority and never dreamed of trying to compete with them. Since the day by the pond when she had refused to listen to his plea for forgiveness, Gilbert, 
save for the aforesaid determined rivalry, had evinced no recognition whatever of the existence of Anne Shirley. He talked and jested with the other girls, exchanged books and puzzles with them, discussed lessons and plans, sometimes walked home with one or the other of them from prayer meeting or debating club, but Anne Shirley he simply ignored, and Anne found out that it is not pleasant to be ignored. It was in vain that she told herself with a toss of her head that she did not care. Deep down in her wayward, feminine little heart, she knew that she did care, and that if she had that chance of the Lake of Shining Waters again, she would answer very differently. All at once, as it seemed, and to her secret dismay, she found that the old resentment she had cherished against him was gone. Gone just when she most needed its sustaining power. It was in vain that she recalled every incident and emotion of that memorable occasion and tried to feel the old satisfying anger. That day by the pond had witnessed its last spasmodic flicker. Anne realized that she had forgiven and forgotten without knowing it. But it was too late. And at least neither Gilbert nor anyone else, not even Diana, should ever suspect how sorry she was and how much she wished she hadn't been so proud and horrid. She's determined to shroud her feelings in deepest oblivion, and it may be stated here and now that she did it so successfully that Gilbert, who possibly was not quite so indifferent as he seemed, could not console himself with any belief that Anne felt his retaliatory scorn. The only poor comfort he had was that she snubbed Charlie Sloan unmercifully, continually, and undeservedly. (laughs) At this point, both of them are pointedly ignoring each other, yet constantly and obviously competing with each other. It must be so awkward at school. (laughs) Neither of them is picking up on the other's feelings. Both are doubling down in order to cover up their feelings of hurt. This is classic. Oh, it really is. Anne's anger at Gilbert made her feel powerful when she was embarrassed and humiliated, but as the anger ebbs, she feels vulnerable. Even though her feelings have changed internally, she can't bring herself to change her actions externally. It's too vulnerable. Gilbert continues to spur Anne on to achievements in the White Sands Hotel concert scene, not by any outward feat of rivalry at this point or any ambition on his part. This is all in Anne's imagination. But suddenly, as her dilated, frightened eyes gazed out over the audience, she saw Gilbert Blythe away at the back of the room, bending forward with a smile on his face, a smile which seemed to Anne at once triumphant and taunting. In reality, it was nothing of the kind. Gilbert was merely smiling with appreciation of the whole affair in general, and of the effect produced by Anne's slender white form and spiritual face, against a background of palms in particular. Josie Pye, whom he had driven over, sat beside him. Her face certainly was both triumphant and taunting. But Anne did not see Josie and would not have cared if she had. She drew a long breath and flung her head up proudly, courage and determination tingling over her like an electric shock. She would not fail before Gilbert Blythe. He should never be able to laugh at her. Never, never. Her fright and nervousness vanished, and she began her recitation, her clear, sweet voice reaching to the farthest corner of the room without a tremor or a break. Self-possession was fully restored to her, and in the reaction from that horrible moment of powerlessness, she recited as she had never done before. Here's where Anne's imagination has run away from her, imagining Gilbert to be laughing at her when there's been zero indication on his part that he has ever laughed at her since calling her carrot. He didn't even laugh at her when she was stranded in the pond. Anne's really putting all her fears on Gilbert. I think that makes it manageable. Mm. She's only thinking about besting Gilbert. It's easy to manage the stakes of the Queen's examination. When she's focusing on proving Gilbert wrong at the concert, it drives away her nerves. In a weird way, Gilbert grounds her and provides her with a convenient place to stick all her negative emotions. That's such an interesting take on their relationship, Reagan, but it makes a lot of sense, especially at this point in the book. I mean, Gilbert isn't doing or saying anything antagonistic to Anne at this point at all. He's just ignoring her. And for her to still transfer all of this emotion onto him just shows that he's taking up a lot of room in her mind. Oh, yes. You can see Anne's animosity towards Gilbert fade even more as they get started at Queen's. Anne has trapped herself in her own pride and stubbornness, and while that inspires her to academic heights, it's at the cost of a friendship. At Queen's, she realizes that by isolating herself from Gilbert, a boy from Avonlea with whom she shares a history, she's ensuring her own loneliness. Instead, she finds herself sitting across a classroom from him, all by herself, thinking that he has a rather nice chin. That's such a funny line where she is. She's looking across the room and she's like, oh, he has a nice chin. 
I never noticed. Ma'am, he's been sitting in the same one room schoolhouse as you for the last six years. What are you talking about? I know. Without the insular nature of Avonlea focusing on the rivalry between Anne and Gilbert, there's so much less pressure. It gives Mm -hmm. Anne a little space to grow and let go of the old grudge. And in doing so, she can start to see Gilbert for who he actually is, rather than what she's imagined him to be. She starts seeing him in a new light. Gilbert hasn't particularly changed, but without the anger and humiliation that Anne had tied to Gilbert, she can start to see and appreciate him as an actual person. Not only is he smart and ambitious, he's a good friend, popular and well-liked by his peers. He's helpful and chivalrous and owns his mistakes. Anne notices Gilbert more and more throughout their years at Queens, or maybe she lets herself notice him more and more. It's clear she's been very aware of Gilbert ever since the Slate incident. And one thing that Anne definitely notices is that Gilbert often walks with Ruby Gillis during their Queen's year. Ruby, who is vivacious, flirtatious, and very pretty. But I shouldn't think that she was the sort of girl Gilbert would like, whispered Jane to Anne. Anne did not think so either, but she would not have said so for the Avery Scholarship. She could not help thinking, too, that it would be very pleasant to have a friend such as Gilbert to jest and chatter with and exchange ideas about books and studies and ambitions. Gilbert had ambitions, she knew, and Ruby Gillis did not seem the sort of person with whom such could be profitably discussed. But she thought that if Gilbert had ever walked home with her from the train, over the crisp fields and along the ferny byways, they might have had many and merry and interesting conversations about the new world that was opening around them and their hopes and ambitions therein. Gilbert was a clever young fellow with his own thoughts about things and a determination to get the best out of life and put the best into it. Ruby Gillis told Jane Andrews that she didn't understand half the things Gilbert Blythe said. He just talked like Anne Shirley did when she had a thoughtful fit, and for her part, she didn't think it any fun to be bothering about books and that sort of thing when you didn't have to. So question for you here, do you think Gilbert is really as indifferent to Anne as it seems? Do you think he's possibly somewhat interested in Ruby for real? Or do you think he's trying to make Anne a little jealous? Or maybe he's just trying to move on from Anne since she made it clear that she'll never forgive him. This is a really hard one because I think I'm a little tainted by Jonathan Crombie's performance in the CBC series. So Jonathan Crombie, who very tragically passed away about seven years ago when he was only 48, he was the actor who played Gilbert and he played him as all in on Anne from the moment he set eyes on her. For Crombie's Gilbert, it was basically love at first sight. And we know this because all his attention and focus is on her all the time, no matter what else is happening in the scene. And it's so effective at making him a teen heartthrob because that's what most young people want from anyone really, but especially romantic interest, is just someone who sees them and notices them and appreciates them. So Crombie's Gilbert very much only spends time with Ruby to make Anne jealous or to test Anne's purported indifference. And it works. And I I do think that's a fair reading of the text, but I also think that Book Gilbert is a little bit more ambiguous. He very well might have just been tossing up his hands, realizing that Anne's stubbornness couldn't be overcome, and he moved his attention to someone who would appreciate him. And I mean, truly, who could blame him? Oh, I agree about Jonathan Crombie's performance as Gilbert. He's definitely the reason I fell in love with Gilbert, or one of the reasons. It's very clear in his performance how quickly he fell in love with Anne, and that's definitely his through line. Yeah, I think his his through line can best be defined as longing looks. Oh, master (laughs) at the longing look. Master at the longing look, yep. (laughs) As their year at Queen's winds down, we know that Anne's animosity has nearly disappeared, yet she still can't bring herself to let Gilbert know, or even to make the first move toward friendship. The book says Anne no longer wished to win for the sake of defeating Gilbert, rather for the proud consciousness of a well-won victory over a worthy foeman. It would be worthwhile to win, but she no longer thought life would be insupportable if she did not. And as we know, at the end of the year, Anne wins the Avery Scholarship and Gilbert wins the gold medal, becoming the two most celebrated students of the year. This ties them and their fates together even more closely, and it also makes college a possibility for Anne, putting her ambition alongside Gilbert's. We find out, after Matthew's death has opened Marilla enough for this confession, that Marilla and Gilbert's dad had once courted. It turns out that they had had a silly argument and Marilla was too stubborn to accept John's apology and John never came back. Marilla admits that she was always sorry she didn't forgive him when she had the chance. 
And although Anne won't admit to any romantic feelings towards Gilbert, I think you could hold that girl's feet to the fire and she still wouldn't admit it. Marilla's experience does remind her of the severe price that is often exacted for such stubbornness. And this primes Anne to finally resolve things with Gilbert when she has the chance. At the very end of the book, after Matthew dies and Anne has decided to put off going to college so she can stay home and teach and help Marilla, we find out that Gilbert has given up the Avonlea school, which is a prime position for him so close to home, so that Anne can take it and have the closest school to Green Gables. This is a pretty darn romantic gesture. And it's romantic because Gilbert doesn't tell Anne he's doing it. He doesn't even tell Anne after it's done. Mrs. Lynde does. He's not doing it so she'll love him or so that she will owe him in any way. He did it because it was a kind and generous thing to do for a person that he admires and wishes the best for, even if she won't give him another chance. That speaks volumes about his character. It's no wonder that generations of tween girls have fallen in love with Gilbert Blythe. I know. This is probably the most character-defining moment for Gilbert in this book. This is proof of the man he's becoming as opposed to the roguish boy he was. He's genuinely selfless and caring. Gilbert knows at this point that there's nothing to be said or done to make Anne forgive him, so he really only does this to be kind to a family in need. And we see that this will be the most consistent through line in his characterization, whether he's heading up the Avonlea Village Improvement Society or attending to his patients once he becomes Dr. Blythe, his generosity and selflessness are Gilbert's defining traits. This selfless act on Gilbert's part, who had every reason to be spiteful or even just not care about what's happening with Anne after five years of the silent treatment from her. <laughs> oh gosh, I know. Pushes Anne to finally take the initiative to bring their rivalry to a close and to be vulnerable with Gilbert. Halfway down the hill, a tall lad came whistling out a gate before the Blythe homestead. It was Gilbert, and the whistle died on his lips as he recognized Anne. He lifted his cap courteously, but he would have passed on in silence if Anne had not stopped and held out her hand. Gilbert, she said with scarlet cheeks, I want to thank you for giving up the school for me. It was very good of you. I want you to know that I appreciate it. Gilbert took the offered hand eagerly. It wasn't particularly good of me at all, Anne. I was pleased to be able to do you some small service. Are we going to be friends after this? Have you really forgiven me my old fault? Anne laughed and tried unsuccessfully to withdraw her hand. I forgave you that day by the pond landing, although I didn't know it. What a stubborn little goose I was. I've been, I may as well make a complete confession, I've been sorry ever since. We're going to be the best of friends, said Gilbert jubilantly. We were born to be good friends, Anne. You've thwarted destiny enough. I know we can help each other in many ways. You're going to keep up your studies, aren't you? So am I. Come, I'm going to walk home with you. Marilla looked curiously at Anne when the latter entered the kitchen. Who was that came up the lane with you, Anne? Gilbert Blythe, answered Anne, vexed to find herself blushing. I met him on Barry's Hill. I didn't think you and Gilbert Blythe were such good friends that you'd stand for half an hour at the gate talking to him, said Marilla with a dry smile. We haven't been. We've been good enemies. But we've decided that it will be much more sensible to be good friends in the future. Were we really there half an hour? It seemed just a few minutes, but you see, we have five years lost conversations to catch up with, Marilla. By the way, Anne is not taking a lot of responsibility here. She says, we decided it would be more sensible to be good friends. Gilbert's been trying to be good friends with Anne for years, but you know, whatever it takes, I guess. You know, I notice in reading this passage out loud, Gilbert says you've thwarted destiny enough. Like literally everyone knows that they are fated to be together. Including Gilbert. Including Gilbert, everyone at school, Marilla, everyone in the town. That is a satisfying note to end the book on, but it clearly leaves open the opportunity for Anne and Gilbert to develop a romance in the future. Ugh, yes. Well, we can't wait to talk about that later. Mm-hmm. For now, for our Birch Path Wander today, let's talk a little about other literary and pop culture rivals that echo what's happening with Anne and Gilbert. The romance genre is absolutely rife with rivals-to-lovers stories. Anne and Gilbert aren't quite enemies-to-lovers. It's never that dire. But they're clearly academic rivals. In this book, they only get from rivals to friends, 
But since it's not exactly a spoiler of a hundred year old book to reveal (laughs) that they do eventually fall in love and get married, it's very clear that what happens in this book is setting the stage for their eventual romance. Maude is driving the slowest moving will they won't they romance out here. Well, you have to keep the readers hooked. (laughs) Yeah, she's got a few books to get through. Yep. (laughs) So way back, we've got Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing that features Benedict and Beatrice, who bicker and banter, declare they hate each other, even though everyone else sees that they are perfect for each other and concoct plans to get them together. The Avonlea folks are definitely noticing this tension between Anne and Gilbert, as well as their obvious similarities in drive, intelligence, and determination, and know they would be great together. Yeah, Much Ado About Nothing is actually such a great example of everyone else in the room can see it before the leads do. Yep. But what this makes me think of, of course, is Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, which for my money is the classic rivals to lovers story. And then, of course, any story that's based on that Pride and Prejudice dynamic is going to have some element of two people who have that terrible first meeting and eventually overcome those initial first impressions of each other. And although this is an old trope, I think that most modern romance, including Anne of Green Gables, owes a debt to Jane Austen. There are very few rivals to lovers stories that don't invoke Elizabeth and Darcy's journey in Pride and Prejudice, and oftentimes even down to the story beats. They all start with a meat disaster as opposed Mm -hmm. to a meat cute, right? Then both characters make lots of very official proclamations of their dislike to the community at large. Then there's maybe a few hints in the story that the rivals aren't actually terrible. And then there's like that big gesture after which the rivalry doesn't make sense anymore and can no longer continue. And then, you know, Pride and Prejudice has been replicated countless times in contemporary retellings. Some newer ones I like are Pride, Prejudice, and Other Flavors by Sonali Dev. Pride and Protest by Nikki Payne, Aisha at Last by Uzma Jalaluddin, Debating Darcy by Sayatani Dasgupta, and my favorite Pride and Prejudice retelling, Eligible by Curtis Sittenfeld. There are so many of these. I read them all and I love them all. A very recent modern book featuring a college academic rivalry turned friendship turned love is Beach Read by Emily Henry. We both love this book so much. And there are lots of Anne and Gilbert shades here. The male lead, Gus, accidentally insults the female lead, January, in a college writing class, leading to an academic rivalry, and then years later, both are writers struggling with writer's block, and by meeting again, they form a rivalry friendship in which they challenge each other to become better writers, eventually falling in love. Beach Read is amazing. If you haven't read that, I recommend it times a million. Even if you don't think of yourself as a romance reader, I promise you, you will enjoy that book. And the author, Emily Henry, is such a rock star and she just loves this trope. January and Gus from Beach Read are definitely rivals. And then in Book Lovers, which you were talking about earlier, there is also a fun kind of enemies to lover storyline between a book editor and a literary agent. So what's interesting about both Beach Read and Book Lovers is those were books that convinced me that I did like an enemies to lovers story. I often felt like I didn't like that trope and I realized what it was, was because in less well-written books, people throw in an enemies to lovers connection as a way of shortcutting witty banter or shortcutting chemistry, right? right? So instead of writing really good banter or really good chemistry, they throw in the, I hate you. No, I hate you. No, I hate you more and feel like that's enough. So I think I read a lot of bad rivals to lovers or enemies to lovers sort of books that made me feel like I didn't like that trope. But then I read Emily Henry and just kidding. No, she writes so well. I was like, no, this actually, this works really well in the hands of a good writer. So I love this trope, but I know exactly what you're talking about. I do think that for authors who maybe are not as experienced or talented as an Emily Henry, it is, it's that shortcut to banter. It's that shortcut to sparkiness. It's that shortcut to conflict. And it's that shortcut to passion, right? Because you hate someone, what's the flip side, right? And so instead of really taking the time to develop all the reasons why two people should be together, it's easier. It's like this fun, funky short shortcut to just talk about all the reasons they shouldn't be. When it's not handled well, it can be very ham-fisted and feel really superficial. But when it is handled well, it is 
my absolute favorite and I could just <laughs> swim in enemies to lovers forever. And in fact, I'll give you a couple more recommendations for some contemporary romances that have this storyline. I think it is well executed. Battle Royal by Lucy Parker. This is a classic rivals to lovers. It's two celebrity bakers who have bakeries literally across the street from each other and they're in competition for a contract to bake the wedding cake for a royal wedding. It's a very, very charming book and it's also a great example of another trope that often lines up with rivals to lovers which is grumpy sunshine right where in at least in battle royal the guy is the grumpy one with the picture perfect bakery and she's the sunshine one with the sweet fluffy peaches and cream fairy tale bakery across the street that book is just cute as heck i like that book a lot I also think of The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern, in which apprentices of two rival magicians are first rivals trying to beat each other in creating elaborate magical circuses featuring ever-increasing complicated feats of wizardry, and then they eventually fall in love due to admiring each other's work and learning from each other. That's very Anne and Gilbert. Oh, it is. I love The Night Circus. It's so unique. Every note of that book hits perfectly for me. It's this amazing setting. It's so creative. It feels so cinematic. And then there's magic. And then the romance is compelling. It's just, <laughs> I feel like I have been looking for a Night Circus read-alike for the past decade, and I haven't found it yet. So if any of you guys listening have an idea, please let me know. Another one that I'll recommend that's an interesting Rivals to Lovers, and, and this would be, I think, a great one for you if you don't read a lot of romance or are not that interested in the genre, is This Is How You Lose the Time War. This was co-written by two authors, Amal L. Motar and Max Gladstone, and it's a sci-fi novella between two warring time travelers. So the time travelers are on opposite sides in sort of this intergalactic, interdimensional war, and they start leaving each other letters in the different times they visit. So it's an epistolary novel, and it's just one of the most exquisitely emotional books I've ever read. And it really drives home the theme that love and connection are universal. It's such a good book. It's high concept. It took me a little bit to get into it. But once I was there, oh, I was there. And then a recent YA Rivals to Lovers, and this is your classic academic Rivals to Lovers like Anne and Gilbert, is I Kissed Shara Wheeler by Casey McQuiston. This book is fabulous. <laughs> it's so funny, but it's also a bit genre defying. It's part mystery, part romance, part kind of like a coming of age homage to John Hughes movies. But at its core, it's about the main character, Chloe Green's academic rivalry with Shara Wheeler, and then Shara's mysterious disappearance a few months before high school graduation. Chloe goes all out. She tears the town apart trying to find Shara. Not, of course, because she loves her, but because she needs the rivalry to continue. And then, of course, it's also because she loves her. <laughs> well, Kelly, you are not being good to my to-be-read stack right now. Sorry. <laughs> A more fantasy type YA series with a solid rivals to lovers plot is the Simon Snow trilogy by Rainbow Rowell. Mm -hmm. Simon and Baz start as antagonistic roommates at a magic school in which Simon might be the chosen one and Baz might be an evil vampire. And they have all kinds of intense rivalry and misunderstood encounters that are just shot through with sexual tension. Uh, yeah, I, it must be it must be the Anna Green Gables influence because I love like a YA academic rivalry book. Yes, but we also can't forget movies. OK, this one is one of my all time favorites as a teen. The Cutting Edge. <gasps> yes. A prissy figure skater and a rough around the edges hockey player team up for their last chance in the Olympics as pairs skaters. They push each other to be better skaters and to be better people. It's hard for them to each be vulnerable as their relationship grows and there's pride and stubbornness as an obstacle for both of them. Love this movie. Copic. <laughs> I pretty much like imprinted on that movie. I love it. And another great Rivals to Lovers movie is, of course, You've Got Mail, where Tom Hanks is the big box bookseller and he faces off with Meg Ryan and her cute little indie children's bookshop. I actually rewatched this really recently. It was so charming. I just loved it. <laughs> I have to say, I was a little depressed that sort of at the end of the movie, you realize, oh, capitalism wins all along. <laughs> I know. I have complicated feelings about that movie. Tom Hanks is deeply charming, but he's also very manipulative in the name of love. But it's still manipulation. So I don't love that part, but I agree. Like I find the movie really lovely and charming to watch. It's just kind of later where I'm like, oh, wait. 
that's a little gross. Right. When you're in it, you're in it. But then when you kind of think back on it, you're like, wait, so he just didn't tell her all this time, even though he knew? (laughs) Well, changing topic, let's do a quick puffed sleeve moment of a favorite Anne and Gilbert scene. I just love this image of Anne in the audience at the debating club concert. It says, when Gilbert Blythe recited Bingen on the Rhine, Anne picked up Rhoda Murray's library book and read it until he had finished, when she sat rigidly stiff and motionless while Diana clapped her hands until they tingled. (laughs) Up until Gilbert's recitation, Anne had been a model audience member, laughing at the funny recitations heartily, shivering at the creepy ones. So her extremely dramatic refusal to listen to Gilbert is very petty and obvious. (laughs) Anne's not often a petty person, but she is when Gilbert is involved. He just brings up outside of her. So I think that my puff sleeve moment for Gilbert is going to be his response to Anne when she finally relents and agrees to be friends. He allows them to just be friends, you know, despite the textual indicators that he might be thinking about Anne as something more than a friend. He has the good sense to let their relationship be about friendship for now and to give Anne the space she needs to grow into herself to focus on Marilla and Green Gables and teaching at Avonlea School. Gilbert knows that he's not the center of Anne's world yet. And he doesn't shove himself into that space. His awareness that Anne is her own person is one of the best things about Gilbert. And it's really refreshing. It's part of the reason, of course, why this is the slowest moving romance ever. (laughs) But it's good. It's good. It's it's such a good example for the young teenager, pre-teenage girls who are reading this book to see that a caring romance can be slow. As we finish up today's episode, let's be inspired by Gilbert. So my recommendation is going to be a movie soundtrack (laughs) that absolutely defined all of my early teenage crushes and still rocks. And that's the soundtrack to Baz Luhrmann's Romeo plus Juliet. Oh, yes. Uh, (laughs) Yes. This album has everything. The whole album is just a ball of early teenage angst, and I still love it. If Anne Shirley was 14 in 1996 like me, I know she would have loved that movie and worn that cassette down into nothing. Yes. Yes, she would have. That is an excellent recommendation. Well, of course, I'm going to be inspired by all of these books and movies we just talked about in our birth yeah. path. <laughs> but I have a recommendation that you might have to squint to see, but makes perfect sense to me. The movie Pitch Perfect, about rival college acapella groups. Becca and Jesse have the bantery rival thing happening. He keeps trying to get her attention. She keeps shutting him down. She's the grumpy. He's the sunshine. She's determined for her group to beat his group in competition. He's just having a good time with the rivalry until she pushes him away too far. And then she has to find a way to reconnect with him. It's such a fun movie. It's in our perpetual comfort watch rotation. And anyway, I think of Jesse as Gilbert's successor in that he's sweet, generous, and supportive, even when their acapella groups are competing head to head. I actually think that's a perfect example of a contemporary Anne Gilbert style romance. Right? I love that. You can't go wrong with Pitch Perfect. Oh my goodness. Love that movie. I could watch just the Elizabeth Banks scenes by themselves. (laughs) Thank you all so much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed what we've been doing over here at Kindred Spirits Book Club. Our character studies have pretty much come to an end, except for the one of Anne herself. So look out for an upcoming episode that's going to be all about Anne. As ever, if you like the pod, please subscribe, rate it, review us on Apple Podcasts, and talk us up to your friends. You can also find us on Instagram at kindredspirits.bookclub, where we share fun and memes and lots of book art. Thanks again, everybody, and happy holidays. Bye, friends. Bye.